This is Talkback, 721-1290 or 1-800-568-5309. This is News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM, KGVO. Missoula's news and weather station. Hey, welcome everybody. Glad to have you along on this fabulous Monday edition. What in the world? Oh, I'm sorry. The disclaimer play. The disclaimer play. That's all right. Well, never mind. That's okay. Well, you all know what the disclaimer said anyway. Welcome to Talk Back, everybody. I'm Peter Christian. That's Nick Christensen over there waiting very patiently to take your calls because it is open phones for the first half hour. And then we have a monumental book. Uh, the Season of Light, Season of Darkness, uh, it's coming up with our professors, Mirdad and Michael, from 9 till 10. So, but uh, in, in lieu of the fact that there we don't have any calls yet, mm-hmm. I must relate a story that is emblematic, I think, of what's happening in our society, especially our business society, okay? Okay. Uh, my, wife, my wife had a treadmill for many years, and it finally broke down, and we've been looking for one. So we finally found one at a local place. Nice people, good, everything's good with them. And so we got it, uh, we brought it home, we got it out of the box, we set it up, eh, nothing. Oh, no. It was completely dead. It did not work at all. Okay, mm. so I called the dealer, he said, well, you'll have to go on the chat with the company and on the moon or whatever the heck they are. So <laughs> I, I got on, I'm chatting, and this is no joke, I'm chatting with a guy named Vladimir. Nice. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's a good start. <laughs> so anyway, I'm chatting with Vladimir, and I told him what's going, did you try this yet? Did you try this? Yes. Okay. Well, here's what we want you to do. Uh, we, the, this is obviously our fault, right? right. So we're going to send you a brand new treadmill. Oh, I said, nice. ooh, how about that? Okay. That's great. Uh, we'll be One that sh- works, hopefully. Yeah, yeah we'll be <laughs> shipping it out today. Said, okay, so what do I do with this one? Oh, and boy. they said, keep it. Whatever you want. Yeah, that's what they do, yeah. I had that happen with the TV once, I too. I could they just, not believe yeah, they it. They just don't want to deal with it. <laughs> I, I, I said, well, this it might just need minor repairs. You you guys can reset. No, no, yeah. no. With, because it's, our, it's out of the box, right? Yeah, yeah. out of the box. Our, our plant, or wherever it is, is obviously out of the country, right? And they're not, they're not going to ship it back to wherever, uh, where it was, wherever it was manufactured. So it's actually, so a $1,200 beautiful new treadmill, all probably just requires a little, you know, minor repairs. They told me just to junk it. I couldn't believe it. You got to try to get that thing working, well, solid I, or something. Well, he, well he, here's what happened: the the company did arrange with a uh, a delivery firm out of Butte, right? Oh, okay. And so the Butte folks came, and remember when they had the big snowfall last week? Yeah, it was like three inches of snow on the ground. Yeah, and you know I have that long, yeah, hundred and fifty foot driveway. Oh, yeah. They could not make the turn into my driveway. Oh no! So these I, two guys, and this is this is this is this is a pat on the back. These two guys, big rugged guys, they got my new treadmill on a on a uh, a dolly, and they hoofed it through three inches of snow, right all the way up 150 feet into the garage. Got it unpacked, got it ready to go, got it set up in my house, and then put the old one in that box, and then hoofed that one out through the snow and muscled it into their truck and went back to Butte. Wow! And so I gave them a, a great big tip because wow. they they went over and above what they what they needed to do so anyway so that's that's what happened to me last week and let me tell you we are now enjoying the new treadmill it works great and so anyway 
You should have kept the other one. You could have had a his and hers <laughs> thing going on. You guys could have ran together, watched some shows or something. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> All right, let's let's get to the phones. Enough about my silly stuff. Uh, my silly stuff. Let's get Skip on the line. Skip, you're up first on Talkback. Hi. Hello, sir. And that was a really good story. I thought it was, when you started it, about Vladimir, I thought it was going to be more of a nightmare. <laughs> no, but, it, it worked out pretty well. That's nice. Uh, I, I told you that I'd tell you about what happened uh, last week when Elsie Arnson was in town. Yes. In Stevensville. How did that go? And, and Well, it, 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 was, it was a mixed bag. She did a, a wonderful job of standing out there in the middle of the court pretty much by herself, except when somebody came up to ask her a question on the microphone for an hour and a half or more. Wow. Um, I read the article that was on the Thursday's uh, Missoulian. It was, it, was, uh, it was nicely done. Uh, a couple little things about it I, I got a kick out of. Uh, I counted them personally. There was right... Just uh, 88 or 89 people there okay. that I counted, and that was pretty nice for Elsie. But, you know, I wish one little thing was uh, it was tough to even get her started on a microphone because uh, no one was there to introduce her. Oh. Uh, there was this dance full of people. I just personally thought it was a little disrespectful for whoever the, the uh, hierarchy of that school system yeah, the, was. the organizer. They should have been there to introduce her, yeah. There was people there that could have done that, but I, just, I kind of thought that was disrespectful, and I don't care if they're listening or not. And then also, there was a lot of people there that were interested from many different parties, uh, uh, people that have children and grandchildren, people who are teachers and, uh, and uh, have other things other than um, curriculum on their minds, like, like uh, wages and vacancies and... Uh, different and, and housing costs when they, you know, that don't match their paychecks, things like that. And then Elsie, uh, Elsie covered a gambit of things that were just huge, similar to what she did on your show that same morning. Right, right. Um, and then, and then she was on again, uh, I think it was Thursday or Friday with, uh, Mr. Noble, who had Aaron's program that day, right. you guys were gone that day, and and she did a similar thing, and she concentrated on uh, in both at, at the gymnasium and on the other show, uh, tracking the money down to the to the uh, school boards that have a huge ability to cover problems with lots of money available. And she explained how how the legislature is involved, and how uh, and we had two representatives there in the house. Uh, you met Wayne Rusk. That was uh, he was in your studio. Uh, he he uh, spoke about his kids being in that school system. In addition, uh, something that. You heard me ask questions about to Rob Nadelson was the uh, John Birch Society. They were there uh, like a herd of hornets, uh, kind of <laughs> in, in, in one section of the of the bleachers, and uh, they had to make sure they gave their little dissertation. Right. And the really official official person who is the chairman of the 
chapter of the John Birch Society here in the Bitterroot was there and um, gave a, a, a litany of things. And, and by the way, some some things that I would have concerns about, too, such as uh, sexuality in the schools at early class ages in, in lieu of um, ABCs and one, well, two, three. Well, if you remember when she was standing right here in our studio, she said that sex education in Montana State Public Schools by statute is not allowed to be taught before the sixth to the eighth grades. Very correct, sir. Yep. And she stated that on another program also. And she made sure that and the picture of her on the front page was her pointing a finger right in that direction. <laughs> and it was. Uh, <laughs> and so meanwhile, uh, the, the whole gambit of things that she covered, uh, one of them being uh, something she brought up on your show. And I was I was glad to hear it. Uh, and then she. She uh, hit it with just a few sentences, had to do with the, uh, the gender identity requiring, in some cases, and she knows they're in some schools in the state, litter pans in case right. a young person identifies as something different. As, as a furry. That, isn't that crazy? Yeah, they have, they have, so, litter, they have litter boxes. Go figure. Yeah, this, yeah. Right. And, 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 well, as far as I'm concerned, they, they should be disappeared. But um, I, I think that if a young person is under 18 years old, that every decision that they make is actually somebody else's responsibility, like a parent or a guardian. You bet. And, and that that kind of education should be at home, Skip. which is exactly what Elsie does. We, yes, we are up against a break, and we appreciate your call, sir. Thank you. And, and she was wonderful all week long on the radio and in person. Thank Excellent. you, sir. Thank you so much. We're going to take a quick break. Susan is waiting. It's open phones. Whatever might be on your mind this morning. And then at 9 o'clock, we'll have our, our, our professors, Mirdad Kia and Michael Mayer, talking about uh, the KGVO Book Club. But Susan's on the way next. Step right up. I had a pretty normal mom life. Everything was pretty good. And it was a very happy life. And we just had a new baby. And then all of a sudden, within a day or two, she's on life support and fighting for her life. They told me my only chance was a heart transplant. And the American Heart Association helped make that possible. Their research helped save me. The American Heart Association funds research that leads to medical breakthroughs, trains people in CPR, and certifies hospitals to provide the best care for people who've had a heart attack or stroke. I am very thankful for the American Heart Association. One simple act today can save your life or the life of a loved one. Heart disease is the number one killer in America. To learn more about how the American Heart Association is saving lives, go to helpheart.org. A public service message of the American Heart Association from this station. Every weekend, Diane Beck of Windermere Real Estate presents Missoula Real Estate Today on News Talk KGVO. Diane and her guests provide interesting information about the local housing market, along with industry-related topics and trends. Missoula Real Estate Today, presented by Diane Beck of Windermere Real Estate, Saturday mornings from 8 till 8.30, and again Sunday mornings from 10.30 till 11 on News Talk KGVO, FM 98.3 and AM 1290. Hey, we're back. This is Talk Back. 721-1290 is our number. Nick Questionson right over there taking your phone calls. And the fabulous Susan campbell Renault is waiting on the line right now. Hey, Susan, good morning. 
Well, good morning. I want to wish both of you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And to all of our listeners that believe in the American free spirit and free speech, um, your show, along with that of, of one other, is the only show that truly is free speech. And I truly respect anyone's opinion because that is what... God bless America. America is all about. And um, for the last two and a half weeks, I have been in Egypt. Oh, my. And, um, yeah. And um, I want you to know that the Egyptian people as a whole, I I talked to, you know me, I talked to everybody. And um, I was talking to cab drivers and restaurant um, restaurant workers and house cleaners and receptionists and, and tour guides, anybody, you know, I wanted to hear what they had to say about anything, you know, and I was very interested in what they had to say. And without exception, every Egyptian that I spoke to said without any prompting that they love Americans so much because we are very respectful of them as humans and we are very generous with tips. We are also willing to purchase things from them. They are a very poor country. Right. And um, it was very touching to see the level of love that these Egyptians have for America. And um, one man in particular stands out in my mind. He said, America is the hope of the world, and everything in your power must be to keep America free. Because without America, there is no freedom. And um, he was so overwhelmed with appreciation for what America gives to the world. And we all must remember that when American soldiers go to foreign countries, we're not going there as conquerors like Russia or China. We are going there to serve. We're going there to help. And then we go away. And we're the only, as far as I remember, and I think Colin Powell said this more eloquently than I did, we're the only nation on earth ever to exist that marched into other countries and then marched out and never expected anything in return. So I, I think when we come to Christmas, which is the birthday celebration of Jesus Christ, it is not actually gifts and commercialism. Um, I think we must dwell on the fact that our precious country is not only a gift to ourselves, but it is a gift to the world. And we must do everything in our power to preserve the freedoms and the preciousness that is our country. And I want to thank Americans that go overseas that are generous and kind and respectful because those Egyptians live under a military state. Everywhere I went, there were military people with heavily armed. And I was 
shocked. And my guide said that America, I mean, we're not like that. And in, and it was very impressive. I went there to see the pyramids, and I climbed into the pyramids, and I went there to see the temples from 5,000 years ago. But I came home with a deeper love and respect for our nation and for the people of America. And don't ever underestimate how wonderful you as an American are, because we are the kindest, we are the most generous, and we are the most precious people on earth. We really are. And unfortunately, Americans don't think it as much as the rest of the world. You, You can't believe the outpouring of love that is extended to Americans. It's pretty precious. Right. It, it, uh, Susan, uh, you left me speechless. Thanks so much for sharing that. We appreciate it. You have, you have a wonderful holiday Merry, season, Bab. Merry Christmas to all. Thank you. All right. Let's, uh, let's get, uh, I believe, Roy's up next. Hey, Roy, we haven't heard from you for a while, sir. What's on your mind? Yeah, well, I try to get all my ducks in a row before I go on there. I try to talk about things that uh, I can find as much facts on as I can, just yes. not to talk. Go for it. Uh, uh, good morning. And uh, a recent, uh, there was a previous caller on about education. Same like, and I just got a imprimus from Hillsdale College. Right. And uh, it said here, the percent growth of population in public schools from 2000 to 2019, source Center of Education Statistics, U.S. Department of Education. Student population grew 7.6%. Teachers grew 8.7%. District administrators grew 87.6%. Wow. (laughs) Now... According, according to uh, Imprimus, it was written by Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College. Any criticism of public education is immediately styled as a criticism of teachers. But as the numbers show, the public education system works to the detriment of teachers and for the benefit of bureaucrats. The teachers' unions themselves, which claim to be defending teachers and children, are in truth defending an administrative system that has grown by leaps and bounds while the number of teachers has grown very little. So that's something that everybody should look I went to school, I can remember having a principal. I don't even think we had a superintendent of the school. And basically, common sense is teachers have a curriculum that's taught. You know, they teach the curriculum that's taught. Why do we need... A district administration, what is their existence for anyways? That's the question I have. Anyway, I'll leave my listeners to do the research on that. And Roy, Roy, I'll do th- a little research. Th- th- thanks for your call. We appreciate it. Before we go to the break, I will say one thing that Elsie Arnson stood right here in our studio and said, that just over half of the entire state budget goes to public education. Mm-hmm. Think about that for a second. That's a lot. <laughs> uh, and there's over 800 school districts throughout the state, many of them just tiny, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, we're, we're going to come right back uh, with more of Talk Back right after this. In Missoula. Chris Jackamick, I served in the United States Air Force, and I deployed three times. So in 2017, I was serving as an Air Force First Sergeant. Our motto in that role is my job is people, everyone is my business. 
But unfortunately, in that year, I would lose my own brother, Lance Corporal Adam Jackamek, to suicide. The majority of veteran suicides are from guns. I store my weapons securely, not only for myself, but for my family. Store all your guns securely. Help stop suicide. My service never stops. Brought to you by N Family Fire and the Ad Council. Okay, we are back on Talkback. Only a few precious minutes left. We have like I mean, four or five minutes left. If there's something on your mind that you'd like to talk about as we begin uh, this holiday week, uh, Christmas is coming up next Sunday. And so, and we are, by the way, in case you didn't hear, you've been living under a rock or something, hmm. uh, starting either Tuesday or Wednesday, we're going to have a massive storm headed our way, according to the National Weather Service. Now, it could be uh, not much. It could be a lot. Uh, they're seeing anywhere from 6 to 12 inches of snow. And then, following that, we may have... Uh, temperatures as low as 20 degrees below zero by, by Saturday or Sunday. Yeah. And then, and then right after that, it's going to get warm and we have a chance of freezing rain. <laughs> Whoopee! Powder River Letterbuck, as my friend, uh, Ray Nikolai used to say. All right. Uh, who's up next? Tim Gardner. Colonel, Colonel Tim, uh, we got about uh, three minutes, sir. It's all yours. What's up? Yes. Good morning, Nick. Good morning, Peter. Yes. Well, it's, uh, this is kind of a timely because there is a storm coming and because it's winter and because people are closed in. I'm going to give a little bit of a public service announcement because our public health officials, all they want to do is sell uh, big pharma. I'm going to give the uh, 10 ways to improve your immune system, which I have talked about for a while. Go for it. So, uh, here we go. All right. Number one, get enough sleep. Uh, sleep deprivation is pretty common nowadays because a hectic schedule. Seven to nine hours a day. Okay. Number two, proper hygiene habits. Take regular showers. Wash your hands. Uh, don't share drinks. And food hygiene and, and food safety. Number three, eat a healthy diet. Do sleep. Uh, yeah, it sounds obvious, but a lot of times we've got to watch the sugary soft drinks and processed sweets. Okay, number four, exercise regularly. Uh, it can be light, it can be heavy, but it flushes out toxins and it transports some minerals and vitamins from your healthy diet. Number five, don't smoke. It really slows down the system and cuts your oxygen level. All right, number six, stay out of isolation, get out and have a positive attitude. Uh, I just learned a new term last week, it's called PMA, positive mental attitude. This helps your immune system. Number seven, manage your stress levels. Uh, keep them down and understand what's going on uh, there's things like meditation and yoga and exercise and hobbies. These help with your stress levels. Uh, get your vitamin D. Uh, you can take vitamin D uh, <clears throat> uh, through pill form, or you can actually get some sunshine. Uh, there's some lights you use to get your vitamin D. Number nine, balance your alcohol. People got to learn to uh, moderate it and uh, keep it down to two drinks. Number 10, consider probiotics because bacteria 
uh, it's a, the good bacteria. Probiotics are the type of healthy bacteria in our digestive system that uh, help us with our immune system and immune defense. Colonel so Tim, those are 10 great tips. And un- unfortunately, we're almost completely out of time. So one, one more quick comment. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Like I said, uh, this, doesn't, this isn't put out by your public uh, uh, health officials, and maybe we need to talk to them about doing that. That's a great idea. Remind people about the thing. Thank you, Colonel. Unless right. you have a Merry Christmas Thank and a Happy New Year, sir. Thank you. All right, we're we are going to take a quick break, and it's almost time for the KGVO Book Club. Our professors Michael Mayer and Mirdad Keel will be joining us at the top of the hour for the season of light and the season of darkness. So be prepared for that coming up. Enjoy all. When you're high, you feel different. You think different, you talk different, you draw different, you listen to music different, but you probably knew that. Problem is, you also drive different, and not in a good way. That's why driving high is illegal everywhere. So if you're high, just don't drive. Make a plan to get a sober ride. Because if you feel different, you drive different. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. This is Talkback, 721-1290 or 1-800-568-5309. This is News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. KGVO, Missoula's news and weather station. Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. It is part two, that is our number two, actually, of the Monday edition of Talkback. Actually, the final Talkback edition of 2022 and you get to be a part of it today uh, nick questions and right over there by the way and uh, talk back is brought to you this morning by brooklyn bagel and bakery for all of your new york favorites they have locks they have new york cheesecake cannolis uh, delicious uh, bagel sandwiches located out on north reserve also brought to you by phillips janitorial where if you have a holiday cleaning that needs to get done for your business or your home call right now and get a free estimate because no job is too big or too small your business or your apartment. Call 260-6617. The views and opinions expressed on TalkBack are not those of the staff, management, or advertisers. Okay, here we are, ladies and gentlemen. Glad to have you along on this uh, on this edition of uh, the KGVO Book Club. Joining us here in the studio, uh, traditionally here in the studio, wearing his wonderful Hunter's Orange today. <laughs> Dr. Michael Mayer, he just wants to stay warm, right? Yeah. Okay, all right. And joining us on the phone right now is... Uh, is Dr. Mirdad Kia, a professor of history at the University of Montana. So, gentlemen, it, we've got a, a fabulous book that uh, I, I, the one I'm seeing right here looks pretty dog-eared. Uh, so, uh, tell me, tell me about the, tell us about this book, and let's get the discussion started. Well, Mirdad and I were talking about this, and we thought it would be important to give a little bit of background about uh, the intellectual context and also uh, the the author Reinhold Niebuhr. And I think the place to start is with the emergence of evolutionary theory in the 19th century. And there were several responses that Christians could have. I mean, one would be to reject evolutionary theory entirely. The other would be to accept it and reject religion, which some did too. And a third would be to try to accommodate the two, which is referred to as liberal Christianity. And it's liberal not in a political sense so much as it is that you don't necessarily need to accept the uh, the creation story as a literal seven days. And that 
con- that idea, liberal Christianity, came to dominate American theological seminaries. And in that context, Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, who was the son of an immigrant, a German immigrant, a minister, um, and who then went to Elmhurst and um, Elmhurst College and Eden Theological Seminary, then did his bachelor's in divinity, master's in divinity at Yale, became a minister in Detroit, and was active in labor and pacifist and socialist movements, and was an amazingly charismatic preacher, and became a leading voice for liberal Christianity. In 1929, he joined the faculty of the Union Theological Seminary and in the 30s began to re-examine his political beliefs and concluded that it was really a form of idolatry to believe, as liberal Protestants did, that human beings could conceive of or achieve God's kingdom on earth. And in 1932, he wrote Moral Man and Immoral Society, in which he argued that individuals might on occasion behave, behave in an altruistic manner, but that uh, social groups acted on the basis of interest. And he eventually turned to theology, uh, to a deeper study of theology, and moved toward a position known as neo-orthodoxy. And neo-orthodoxy simply means new orthodoxy or orthodoxy brought back. And what was orthodox was the emphasis on original sin, that human beings had the freedom and creativity to do good work, which led them to overestimate themselves because human beings were imperfect and therefore any institutions they well, created were naturally would be flawed. Imperfect, right. right. Yeah. And that had political ramifications for him because liberals thought human beings, political liberals, were innately good. And communists thought changing the economic system would bring about an, an ideal society. And Niebuhr argued that both were diluted because the imperfect nature of humans uh, meant that any society they could create would be imperfect. Um, and he expressed those ideas in the book we're going to talk about today, the, the children of light, children of darkness. Um, he argued that the children of darkness, or fascists basically, were driven by the will to power, and that led to totalitarianism. But the foolish children of light, the communists, were driven by utopian zeal, which also led to totalitarianism. The two extremes, in other words, were guilty of the same sin, the original <clears throat> sin, the sin of intellectual pride. And therefore, they most, just came at it from different directions. Yeah. yeah. And intellect, therefore, they were willing to destroy freedom and anyone who got in their way. Um, and I think in the introduction, he, he summed it up when he said, man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but man's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary. And then the one other context that I think is important is that after World War II, liberal Christianity suffered a stunning loss of relevance. Because if human beings were innately good, how do you explain a war that killed 60 million people, 11 million people dead in Hitler's camps, uh, 6 million Jews and, uh, and all the rest? Um, how, how can you explain Stalin? Uh, and so neo-orthodoxy, which emphasized the sinful nature of humans, uh, explained much better Hitler and Stalin to people of the 40s and 50s than did, um, than did liberal Christianity. And Niebuhr became a rock star. Um, it, it's, it's impossible to imagine today a theologian, uh, an academic theologian, occupying the position he did. Um, he, he had a column in Life magazine. He, he, he was called on by political leaders. He was, um, and he, he, was a, he was a major intellectual figure, and I think it was a combination of the man and the moment. Um, and, and, the, and the message. Yeah, right, exactly. Neo-Orthodoxy appealed to a post-war American audience. But also, he was not only a brilliant preacher, but he was able to explain in fairly simple, direct terms, uh, really sophisticated theological concepts. 
All right, Mirdad, we we have a minute before we have to take a break. You want to add something? Oh, yeah, before I, th- we... I, th- I think yeah, no, I think Mike uh, <clears throat> captured uh, uh, the background very well and the importance. Uh, his uh, book, The Irony of American History, uh, was described as the most important book ever written on U.S. foreign policy. Wow. Uh, the historian Arthur. Uh, Schlesinger described him as the most influential American theologian of the 20th century, and the Time magazine called him the greatest Protestant theologian in America since Jonathan Edwards. So, I mean, that gives you a sense of wow. how important he was, and he was—he has been quoted by folks on both sides of the divide, from uh, Hubert Humphrey and uh, Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Uh, to, you know, politicians on the sort of Republican side of the divide. And uh, I, I think the sentence that Mike quoted, man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but man's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary, has been quoted probably a million times. Uh, but I think his greatest importance is uh, the intellectual um, transition uh, from a more working class, you know, sympathies with working class uh, and commitment to pacifism and socialism uh, to a more um, anti-Soviet um, uh, sort of uh, speaker who actually supported the United States uh, efforts to confront Soviet Union. Uh, especially after the Second World War. And with that, we're up against a break. By the way, we would love to have you be a part of this. This what the book club's all about. It's a club. So if you would like, it's, if you've read this book, maybe perhaps you'd like you to call 721-1290. If you'd like to learn more about what we're talking about, I know you're sitting in rapt attention right now. And uh, hope if you want to be a part of the conversation, we'd love to have you do that. 721-1290. Or you can also, uh, you can also use the KGVO app. Hit the message us button, and uh, Nick will be happy to pass those messages along to uh, Michael and Mirdad. We'll be back right after this. For over 100... Some of the best sounds you'll ever hear are generic, safe, effective, even money-saving. Just like FDA-approved generic drugs. Even if they don't come in the exact same color or shape as their brand name equivalents, they have the same key ingredients and go through a rigorous review process. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist today and visit fda.gov slash generic drugs. Generics are safe, effective, and can save you money. You'll like the sound of that. Hey, we're back on Talk Back. The KGVO Book Club is underway, and we are talking with our two professors, Mirdad Kia and Michael Mayer. Uh, joining us on the phone right now is uh, Mirdad. Here in the studio is Michael. And we do have folks already uh, ready to get involved here. Uh, the phone line's beginning to fill Peter, up. if I may just oh, yes. say one more sentence before. Go right, go right ahead. We, yeah, I think, you know, um, I, I would like to hear Mike's comments on this. But there is something very central about, uh, you know, uh, Niebuhr's writing. And um, as I was uh, looking at the children of light and the children of darkness that Mike uh, described beautifully, um, you know what one thing which is very central to Niebuhr's writing is call for humility. Uh, Call for humility, especially for public figures and political leaders. Um, And I think one of the reasons that I like this 
choice as a book was um, when I listen to leaders across the world, including our own country, this, um, you know, emphasis on certainty of ideas and the superiority of their ideas over other ideas. It's, it, it, this is a reminder that humility in politics, humility by everyone at every, every level of the society, it's so central to not only communication with other people, but to tolerance and inclusion and also respecting and listening to other people's opinion before they are dismissed or booed out of the room. Well said. All right, let's get Helena. She's up first. Helena, good morning. You're on with our guests, Mirdad and Michael. Go ahead. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. Um, I had a question about Nienberg's, um evolu- intellectual evolution, how he, his ideas and his affiliations in politics changed over time. Um, he supported one thing and then later came to realize that he shouldn't be supporting it. Um, how did he evolve um, politically? Because I know from reading a little, little bit about him that he considered politics integral to practicing the Christian religion because people were hungry, people were hurting, and you address that through your political action. I hope that makes sense. Thank you sure, very it much. Cer- it certainly does, and it, it's a very good question. Sure. The um, Niebuhr began as an adherent of the social gospel, which was a product of liberal Christianity. Uh, Walter Rauschenbusch and um, others in the late 19th century um, argued that Christianity in action uh, it, you, it was was important to apply Christian principles to the new industrial system. And Niebuhr was, was part of that. And Niebuhr, uh, that led Niebuhr to socialism. And he, he ran as a socialist candidate when he first got to New York, uh, first for the state legislature and then, uh, for the U.S. Congress. He got very, very few votes and, um, uh, and, and, uh, went on with his, with his preaching, but, uh, and, and his scholarship. But in the thirties, um, it, he began to reconsider the, the, the idea of perfectibility of human society. And, um, this led, and, and it, Along with his, his his reexamination of theology in the abstract, led him to question the the idea of the perfectibility of human beings, and this led him to neo orthodoxy, which led him to reconsider his politics. He became a Cold War liberal. Can I can I ask you that? Was his brilliance, as you've described it, did that make it more difficult for him to realize that humility was the answer here, or was it? easier when he when he saw what was going on it, it, it's a, it's a it's a good point and it, it i i don't know but um he, he certainly practiced it one of the most interesting things about about niebuhr i, I think in the late 1930s uh will herberg who was a an, an important intellectual in the middle of the 20th century who was the son of jewish immigrants and had become a communist and um began to reconsider this in in, in the 30s and went to Niebuhr, um, whom he respected enormously, and asked him about converting. He wanted to convert to neo-Orthodox Protestantism. Niebuhr said, explore your own tradition, uh, wh- which for a Protestant minister is an astonishing act of humility right. when you think about it. Right. And yeah. um, in, in that sense, he, 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 was, he was extraordinarily impressive in, in that regard, practicing what he preached. Sure. All right, so we have another caller. This is Mr. Wingnut. Mr. Nutt, good morning. You're on with our professors. Go ahead. Well, good morning. Uh, 
I found I had a, a lot of comments on, on this book, but let me start with a, a preface. You know, I'm just a simple old mule packer um, who spent most of my career packing mules and chopping trees, and, and that's my background. So lot of, a lot of time there. to think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And sing songs, too. I, I, I'll tell you what, Mr. Mr. Nup, would you do me a favor? I, I, want, I want to be able to give you all the time you need to say what you want. Would you mind if we took a quick break first? Because I want to give you give you that time. Is that all right? You bet. Okay, we're going to come right back with more of Talk Back. We, by the way, we have several, several other lines open. If you want to get in on this conversation that's just beginning, 721-1290, we'll be right back. Okay, we are back on Talk Back, 721-1290. Okay, Mr. Nutt, uh, you are on Talk Back. I'm sorry to interrupt it, but I want to give you full time to uh, go ahead and uh, state your point. Go ahead, sir. Okay, I found the first part of this book, what I came to, in my mind, was it's like a trip through the House of Mirrors. Is there's, there were times that, because I don't have a context of understanding the uh, some of the philosophers and the uh, political thinkers of the day, that I just didn't have a good context for what he was saying. But some of the things that did start coming into focus was, in the, to break it down into groups and religion and family, and politics. Uh, so I, I'm going to focus on the most important of those to me in this call. And that is, you know, when we talked about the book iGen, and I brought up a quote from the lady on page 313 that uh, in part said, leaving behind traditional structures such as religion. And I said, you know, maybe that's not the best idea that because religion has served as a moral compass for centuries. And I find that Mr. Niebauer kind of echoed or boistered my argument in that. And on page 80, he, he said, but in historical faith such as Christianity, the religious transcendence of the individual over the community is a final resource for the highest forms of social realization. And again, on page 82, he says, the most effective opponents of tyrannical government are today, as they have been in the past, men who can say we must obey God rather than men. And, you know, for a, a, a quick segue there, we had three callers on the last Global Hotspots who brought up the idea of the United States and, and, you know, where it's going. But I would like to offer that, you know, the real Global Hotspots to God is the individual. It's the individual soul. That, that, that is where his focus is, because there are Christians all over this world in all forms of government. And God is really more interested in your individual relationship and walk with him than in that of a country. And Acts 17 uh, brings that up beautifully, and I won't quote it, but it's in Acts 17, where he tells us that he knows the bounds and the times, the habitations of man or the country boundaries, if you will, and that we are all made of one blood. Okay, second area I'd like to focus on is the family. And on page 61, he makes the statement, the family organization, which in turn is the nucleus of larger organizations of the human community. But then he goes on in page 77, and this is about feminism and motherhood. He says, the right of women to explore and develop their capacities through their family function was unduly restricted in all previous society. It was finally acknowledged in our society. And then he calls it a newfound freedom. And further to quote, the male 
oligarchy used fixed principles of natural law to preserve its privileges and powers against the new emergent in history. And my comments are on that, and the reason I juxtapose with religion is because, you know, I'm not going to offer a value judgment. But what I will do is, is and he wrote this in 1946, and so we've had less than a century to explore what feminism and motherhood and the changes in family structure over the last 100 years compared to the previous centuries of the family as the nucleus of societal organization. So I just say, you know, let's give it some time before we uh, come to some of the conclusions he did. And my last comment in this initial go around, if I ever get in again, is I found the end of the book quite uh, concerning because he comes up with the concept of a universal one community. And to quote, the same technical situation that makes the universal community ultimately imperative. And then he goes on to say, which makes the unification of the world to imperialistic domination seem plausible, if not actually possible. And the final quote is, the world community, this is page 185, the world community standing thus as the final possibility and the impossibility of human life will be in actuality the perpetual problem as well as the constant fulfillment of human hopes. And I would just like to uh, juxtapose that with Revelations in the 13th chapter, where it points out, oh yeah, there will be a, a one community, and oh yeah, there will be a one religion. But uh, I think we should consider you know, one against the other. All and right. That's my initial ramble. Con- congratulations uh, <laughs> on doing your homework, sir. Thank you so very, very much. So, Mir Dad and Michael, your comments on Mr. Nutt. Go ahead. Mike, please. Well, a couple of things. I think um, uh, Mr. Nutt got, a, got it a little bit wrong at the end. Uh, Niebuhr expresses kind of the desirability of a, a world, an international community, but a great deal of skepticism about the means of. Uh, implementing that vision again, like everything else, there's a, there's a there's a utopian vision which may or may not uh, you may or may not agree with, it may or may not even be a good idea. But uh, the the means of implementation uh, and and the possibility of implementation are are significant. There are significant limits, and he argues that uh, national interests and various other things would would make that a very very difficult thing to achieve. So he certainly recognizes that. Uh, Merida, did you have? Yeah, I think I think one thing about him is that uh, there is a very foundational realism about his writings, mm-hmm. and the emphasis is on realism. And uh, uh, I th- I think the fact that, for example, um, he moves toward uh, a position, uh, taking very strong position on uh, you know the threat posed by the Soviet Union after the Second World War and. Uh, Soviet communism in general, especially in Europe, but also elsewhere, uh, clearly shows that uh, he's watching the unfolding global situation very closely, and he adjusts himself. He's not a dogmatic, and I think one of the foundations of his thought is anti-utopianism, in fact. Uh, these kind of glorious utopian alternatives, you know, coming out, it actually frightens him in some ways. And that's the part that I really appreciate, his realism uh, in in terms of society, but in terms of global politics 
uh, is quite uh, it's quite impressive. And with that, we are up against a break. Dave is waiting very patiently to come on and talk with you. We have several other lines open, by the way. Uh, the Children of Light, the Children of Darkness is the is the book. And our guests, of course, are hosts, I should say, uh, Dr. Mirdad Kia, Dr. Michael Mayer. And we would love to have you be a part of this. By the way, if you've read the book or it's a little difficult to find, right? I mean... No, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I I, I got mine on Zoom, sir, or, or not on Zoom, but on on my Nook, on my yeah. on my iPhone. So I was able to get it. We're going to come right back with more of Talkback after this timeout. I'm Ben Affleck, and I want to thank you for joining me and supporting paralyzed veterans of America. I joined the Navy to serve my country while parachuting with my platoon. My parachute didn't open. I broke my neck. Thanks to PVA, paralyzed veterans are getting specialized medical care and treatments, the jobs they want, and the accessible vehicles and homes they need. I just don't think my family would be as happy as they are without the support that I received from Paralyzed Veterans of America. Learn more at pva.org. Okay, we are back on Talkback. 721-1290 is our number. Of course, it's the KGVO Book Club underway right now. Dr. Mirdad Key on the phone. Dr. Michael Mayer here in the studio here at KGVO. And uh, Dave has been waiting the longest. Dave, uh, thank you so much for holding. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, good, good morning. Did your author ever spend much time talking about Italy? You know, in the 1920s, Christian Italy was in chaos until uh, uh, Mussolini was appointed prime minister. And then he slowly, slowly turned himself into a dictator. And, and he he brought peace and and no chaos to the country and the, and the church loved him and and it slowly even after he had someone killed uh it's it's like i mean if people choose they'll choose uh law and order and peace and forget about democracy and they want their cup of the, you know their piece of the pie and and um it just seems like it dictatorship you know, or that process can happen to any democracy. All right. Thank you, Dave. Uh, gentlemen. Well, it, it, it certainly can. I'm, I'm not aware that um, Niebuhr wrote extensively about Italy, but he did write about the, the dynamic between order and freedom that, that, that Dave mentioned. And um, he, again, he argued for balance. So he, he, he understood that um, a community requires freedom just as the individual does. The the community also has an interest in freedom, but the individual also has an interest in order and that there's a, a balance and that um, that those can't be resolved, as he put it, against the idolatrous self-worship of both the individual and the community. Yeah, I, and I think that um, though um, he's much more well known for his, you know, stands against Soviet totalitarianism, uh, he was equally uh, very concerned because he had seen the evils of totalitarianism of the right, which is uh, which was very much uh, represented by Hitler and Mussolini. So, the Children of Light and Children of Darkness is actually a reference to those, the two sides of totalitarian thought process and systems, uh, which was represented by uh, the extreme left and the extreme right. And in response to, to, to totalitarianism of the right, I mean, Niebuhr was um, enormously uh, important in getting Karl Barth, a German theologian, out of Nazi Germany and, and saving his life and yeah. bringing him to the Union Theological Seminary. Too bad he couldn't uh, save Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
Yeah. Anyway, go ahead, gentlemen. Sorry. No, go ahead, Mike. Sorry. Um, yeah. No, I, I'm 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 good on this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're, we're, we don't have uh, we're we're free of callers. Yeah. Oh, so, okay. gentlemen, it's yeah. yours yours to go ahead and talk about the book in any way you'd like. Yeah. So, um, my question uh, for Mike was, you know, that there is a sort of a return of Nieburg. I mean, uh, there is just a, a process that we now have um, um, of kind of. Um, Re- rediscovering him almost that's how i would uh, uh call it and uh you know though he has been quoted you know as i mentioned by from anyone from hillary clinton by john mccain uh, from barack obama and jimmy carter to james comey but uh, there was a renewed interest in Newark's work and uh part of it was uh President Obama's uh, admiration for him. Uh, I remember in uh, 2017, PBS had a documentary on him, uh, which was titled An American Conscience, uh, the Reinhold Niebuhr story. What is about uh, Obama's fascination and admiration about uh, this particular person? Yeah, it's a good question because Obama was not necessarily known for his humility. Um, I, I think part of it was an intellectual fashion, and some of it was a response to uh, the the wars against the wars against terrorism, and the idea that America could export its model of democracy to other countries, and that this was the one model that would work, and everybody would be not only willing but but glad to accept it. And the, um, the, the, this was an example for, for many people, including um, Andrew Bacevich, uh, that this was an example of American overreach and American intellectual pride. Again, the, the original sin is intellectual pride, uh, Adam and Eve eating yeah. from the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And the, this idea of intellectual pride that you know best, that you're not bound by uh, well, divine will and other things well, that, leads that's, to that's trouble. because the serpent deceived them in thinking that God was trying to keep something from them. But if you eat this, then you'll know everything he knows. Right. And right. Uh, <laughs> you don't is, is the point of the story. Yeah, yeah. And there, there are disastrous consequences. And I think Meredith's point is really well taken that uh, there, there was a revival of... Um, Again, for those who don't know Andrew Bacevich's work, he was a, a military officer who did his Ph.D. at Princeton and taught at Boston University for a number of years. He's retired now. But he wrote a number of books uh, beginning in the 90s criticizing uh, first Clinton and then and then Bush to the, their foreign policy for um, for overreach, for uh, excessive hubris, excessive pride. And um, not recognizing the limits, not just of American power, but the limits of American ideology. Mm-hmm. So we have, uh, I believe we have another caller. Is that right, Nick? Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I said wingnuts. Oh, wing Mr. Mr. Nutt is back. All right. So, Mr. Nutt, good morning. You're back with our guests. Go ahead, sir. Okay. Uh, I had some further comments. Um, this kind of formulates pages 123 up through pages 146 where he starts talking about uh, nazism and uh, race and, and segregation and a quote from page 138 it must seek to establish contacts between the groups and prevent the aggravation of prejudice through segregation and then on page 146 in part it says yet fascist demagogues have been able to wield 
or to weld the fears and resentments of this class into a positive demonic political force. And in part, that kind of brings up the fascism that Dave mentions. So I, I have to ask myself, you know, what is the relevance today? And so I, to me, uh, when I think about what, you know, the political forces that are at play in our country today, I ask myself, which, which segment is seeking to bring divisiveness and segregation, whether it's resegregating uh, races in, in colleges or by uh, sexual gender or, or religions. Uh, so that's what I got to thinking about in this part of his, his comments on race and segregation and using fear and uncertainty and doubt. Well that's said. It. Thank you, Mr. Nutt. Go ahead, gentlemen. Uh, it, uh, well, I'll tell you what, hey, well, we're, we're, I'm looking at my clock. We're up against a break right on the money. So I appreciate that. We're going to come right back with uh, more of our guests and this wonderful book, uh, the, the, the Children of Light, The Children of Darkness. If you haven't read it yet, you should go online and get it. And I think it'd be very, very uh, fulfilling for everyone. We'll be right back right after this. Authentic New York bagels and pastries. My name is Teresa Barber. I was in the United States Navy and I served overseas in the Middle East and Africa. Early on in my career, I had a commander that taught our suicide prevention training and the very next day he took his own life. 90% of suicide attempts involving a gun are fatal. My way of continuing my service is to help protect my community by being a responsible gun owner and by storing firearms safely. Store all your guns securely. Help stop suicide. Brought to you by N Family Fire and the Ad Council. Okay, we are back on TalkBack now. 721 is our number. And this hour just flies by as it always does. Uh, the, the KGVO Book Club, uh, Dr. Michael Mayer joining us here in the studio. Dr. Mirdad Kia uh, joining us on the phone this morning. And I believe Rick is up next with a comment or a question. Didn't you have Wingnut's call right before that? Yeah, I, I just... Uh, didn't Wingnut have a question? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Right? Uh, you wanted I, to... I didn't get the question, actually. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. we can move on. Okay, That's let's fine. get Rick on the line. Rick, good morning. You're on TalkBack. Go ahead, sir. Hi, I'm a fan of uh, Sol- Solzhenitsyn, and I was wondering um, how this book compares to his thinking, because um, he was one time a, 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 not a hardline communist, but he went along with the with the, the party until he was thrown into a gulag and he came to the conclusion that you could, that you can only change uh, a system when a, each individual changes their heart that the evil is in er, everyone's heart and i was wondering if you had a comment on that that's very very well put go ahead yeah it's, it's an interesting comparison um Solzhenitsyn was also religious, but in a in a very different context. I mean, he he was he was committed to Eastern Orthodoxy, Russian Orthodoxy specifically, uh, which is a very different religious tradition from the the either the liberal or neo Orthodox Protestant tradition that that Niebuhr came from. But uh, the the idea of um, the individual and and the relationships of collective is is, is central to both of their work. Yeah, so Janitsyn also, uh, from my knowledge of it, and I'm not an expert, uh, but he basically believed that one of the evils that has befallen his country, Russia, in the form of Soviet Union, was that uh, Soviet communism lacked any form of moral or ethical compass. Uh, And that by declaring God dead and religion irrelevant uh, and creating uh, 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 atheist state which could impose its will 
what uh, the system had done was basically crushed uh, the traditional moral fabric of the Russian society, which was represented in the Russian Orthodox Church. Yeah. Michael. So in, in, in some ways, I think uh, the call to return to some form of um, morality and ethics based in the church was very much a way to fight back against totalitarianism of the Soviet system. Right. It was, it was, the, the idea was that um, human beings should not suppose that their belief systems, uh, their, the belief systems they constructed, uh, were unconstrained by uh, some sort of larger, uh, or, or as Niebuhr would put it, divine will. All right, let's get right back to the phones. Helena is back. Uh, Helena, good morning. Thanks for joining us again. Go ahead. Um, thank you very much for taking my call. I had a question. Um, your guests have talked a lot about uh, Niebuhr's caution against hubris. And um, I know it was explained in the beginning that this chain of thought that led to his, his book um, began had its roots in the 19th century discussions of evolutionary theory. Um, and I, I understand that Catholicism sort of made its peace with evolution by saying, Science and theology are two separate human pursuits, and we can have religion and we can have evolutionary theory. Um, and that has, has worked, I think, um, for them. But my question has to do with Niebauer's attitude towards scientific hubris. Um, sometimes I get upset at, you know, a new discovery, a new realization, and it comes out, oh, well, we know that. In science, we have discovered that. Um, the truth is those discoveries are always changing and always evolving as we learn more. So my question boils down to, does Niebuhr caution against scientific hubris specifically? Thank you. It's another good question. Yeah, you bet, especially after what we've just gone through the last three years. Yeah, and uh, and we, we could have used a little bit of it. I think uh, uh, health public health experts did themselves a lot of damage by issuing pronouncements at the beginning of an of a pandemic about which they knew nothing and and it's not because they were ignorant it's not because they weren't uh serious people it's because it was it was new we called it a novel coronavirus because it was new and the unwillingness to say we don't know or this is our best guess at the moment but stay tuned things may change i i think did a, did a lot of damage and i while niebuhr didn't spend um, to, to my knowledge, a lot of time writing specifically about science, but it, every form of human construct for him was was limited and and fallible. And of course, science itself um, is subject to continual questioning, and it, it's constantly changing. And the idea that the science says, which we've heard so much of, is is nonsense. Science doesn't say much of anything. Scientific researchers say something that is subject to challenge and and potentially to change. Yeah, and uh, remember uh, that uh, there were different models of countering uh, or responding to the threat posed by the uh, coronavirus. And I remember so much condemnation of the Swedish model, especially in this country. Uh, Sweden did not shut down its economy, did not uh, forbid people from coming out. It actually, uh, more or less, and I'm, I'm, I know I'm making it oversimplistic, it basically suggested face masks and it suggested uh, distance. Uh, but, for example, restaurants were kept open 
And, uh, you know, the Swedish uh, scientists had a very different take, and yet there was such a uh, formidable and organized attack against countries such as Sweden uh, for not following, you know, our steps. And, uh, you know, now we realize, I think, that Sweden was not at all unsuccessful, uh, and, in fact, their mortality rate was lower in overall uh, numbers. Yeah, that's that's a very important point, and uh, the merit I just made. I mean, the, the Swede- Swedish excess mortality rate was was something over between six and seven percent, as opposed to say eighteen percent in Australia, twenty four percent in England, and over fifty percent in the United States. Um, and yet. A lot of people, as Meredith pointed out, in this country actually accuse the Swedish government of genocide for not following one set of scientific assumptions about the proper response. Where, where's that hubris come from? Yeah, exactly. And anyway, we're, we're going to come right back, even by hubris over death. It, it, anyway. Yeah, it come, the hubris comes from a Ph.D. <laughs> How do you spell hubris? Ph.D. Anyway, we're going to come right back after this. So this is a one-minute timeout, and I believe we have... Uh, nope, we don't have another caller. That's fine. Uh, we will continue to talk with our guests, Mirdad Kia and Michael Mayer, right after this one-minute timeout. Whether you're selling your house... Hey, we're back. This is uh, Talk Back, and uh, joining us here in the studio, Michael, Dr. Michael Mayer, and joining us on the phone, Dr. Mirdad Kia. We're talking about the children of light, the children of darkness, and uh, in lieu of calls, gentlemen, uh, we have exactly eight minutes left in our time together, so go ahead. So I thought that Mike uh, and uh, I can talk just a little bit about the next book, which we have discussed. And uh, um, we thought that uh, now from a kind of a more deeper philosophical discussion about religion and about humility and uh, the role of science and so on and so forth, uh, we should go back to history and uh, focus on a very important uh, moment in uh, in uh, United States history and a very important person uh, even before he uh, was elected as the president of United States, Dwight D. Eisenhower. And uh, so, Mike, if you want to go ahead and introduce the book, for those of our listeners who might want to acquire it and read it. Yeah, the, the book we decided on is, is Douglas Kennard, K-I-N-N-A-R-D, uh, and the title is Eisenhower, a Soldier Statesman of the American Century. And it's a short biography, and uh, the reason we wound up with that is because Meredith raised this issue. I know most people who, who know anything about me now, I've, I've written on the Eisenhower years, and, oh, this must be one that, that the mayor figured was was important. But Meredith's had uh, a, a long, long um, sort of dialogue and in, interaction with American democratic leadership, and he's thought a great deal about it. And uh, he was the one who suggested that this would be a good in, uh, you know, window into some of those issues. And Kennard's book is a very short, um, sort of easy-to-take uh, version of Eisenhower's life, and it, uh, but it raises all sorts of issues from wartime to presidency about, about leadership. Now, Mirdad, it's, I think it's interesting because of your Persian uh, uh, descent, uh, coming to yeah. this coming coming to this country as an adult and and be, and and having having the opportunity to look at the society that we have here from your perspective is coming from uh, somewhere else in the world and looking yeah. at, at at the framing of our constitution looking at uh how how we came to be who we are uh, from an out if you will an outsider's view i think uh, uh Eisenhower must have a tremendous fascination for you 
tremendous fascination. I I think that uh, it brings up, and I will respond to your uh, uh, excellent uh, point here um, in terms of my own personal uh, sort of context. But um, I thought that, first of all, uh, when you look at Eisenhower and his accomplishments uh, uh, from a very humble background, uh, not he uh, alone, but um, most of his brothers, all of his brothers, uh, accomplishing so much, uh, the role of a very strong mother figure uh, in his life and upbringing, uh, his accomplishment as a commander and as a general, um, especially, of course, during Second World War, but even before, and uh, the fact that uh, what is it about our system these days that cannot reproduce Eisenhower's? Uh, I'm not suggesting that we should go and look for an um, army commander or military commander, but the kind of character uh, build up that uh, we see in Eisenhower is quite impressive. But also, um, Mike and I were talking about comparison and contrast then with 1960s, and uh, especially with the uh, uh, very, I would say, over-glorified uh, figure of John F. Kennedy, uh, and uh, sort of bringing this not as Democrats or Republicans, but as how history uh, has been written and how historical figures have been either um, glorified or to some degree dehumanized or uh, demonized. Uh, but in my personal context, uh, uh, I became very fascinated with Eisenhower uh, because I had heard a great deal about uh, his accomplishments during Second World War. But also in 1950s, as Mike is very much aware of, uh, there was a tumultuous moment in the history of the country of my birth, and it was during the Eisenhower administration that a military coup took place uh, and changed the government in Iran. Uh, now, the Eisenhower administration, and especially uh, the two leader, the, the two, I would say, Dulles brothers, uh, John Foster Dulles uh, and Alan Dulles, uh, they ran the State Department and the CIA, were very much blamed for uh, intervening or interfering in Iran's internal affairs. So that's how I became sort of uh, interested in uh, the Eisenhower administration and the role of uh, that administration in the uh, internal situation in Iran. But since then, of course, I've had a great deal of rethinking and revising as I have read more and uh, that would be part of this discussion in terms of U.S. foreign policy in 1950s, not only in the Middle East, but also in Central America and elsewhere. Do you remember what Eisenhower's final warning to the United States was? Beware of the military-industrial complex. Industrial complex, yeah. yes. Uh, I'll, I'll, how, much, how much time do we have? Uh, we have uh, about a uh, minute and a half. A minute and a half. I think we should get that in. Peter Virick was um, a, a brilliant intellectual um, in the middle of the 20th century. He was a historian of Russia, taught at Mount Holyoke for 40-some years. Uh, he also was a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet and a brilliant political commentator. Uh, he's had three careers at the highest level. I, I'm telling you, I could barely maintain one. But um, he summed up in the last lecture he gave in the Russian history 
survey that he taught for so many years, the last line of the last lecture he, he, he gave at Mount Holyoke summed up Niebuhr in, um, in one sentence. He said, if you kill for love, and he didn't mean erotic love, he meant you know, passion for cause. If you kill for love or to make a perfect society, you'll never stop killing because human beings aren't perfect. And he walked off the stage. Talk about a drop of the mic. Um, that's, one I, that's, that's one I've envied for a long time. That's amazing. Gentlemen, we have exactly one minute left. Any final thoughts? Uh, this is our last talk back uh, for the year. So, uh, Mirda, go ahead. No, I just want to uh, take this opportunity to thank you, Peter, and to thank Nick for always being open and generous and uh, inviting us to share some of our ideas with uh, our wonderful listeners. I want to wish everyone a very, 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 very happy and healthy uh, holiday season, Christmas, and the New Year. And, and we will talk to everyone after the, uh, the arrival of the New Year. Thank you so much, and thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure, pleasure having you on. Okay, so uh, now, Nick, we are pretty much done for the year for Talkback, right? Yeah, we'll be back on January 3rd, uh, which is that Tuesday of the New Year. All right, have a wonderful Christmas holiday, everybody, for Talkback. I'll see you tomorrow morning at 6. Bye-bye.